This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 683. People feel trapped. They feel like they're being led into a trap. Concern is a negative emotion. They're automatically getting dumped. If they say no and they don't feel trapped, then they're not going to be getting dumber in the moment. They're going to be more likely to hear you out. They're going to be more likely to consider the options. They're going to be more likely to think of the next steps. It's the same neuroscience rule. Let me keep you out of negative thought. The chances that we can collaborate effectively are much higher because neither one of us are getting dumber. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, the best, the highest ranked, and the baddest real estate podcast in the world. I am joined today by my co-host, Rob Abasolo who I love dearly, as well as a fantastic guest on today's show. We have none other than world-renowned expert negotiator Chris Voss, author of Never Split the Difference and other books coming in to talk with us about how to negotiate real estate specifically. Chris has recently been introduced into the world of real estate and the negotiation that happens therein, and he shares tons of amazing advice for how you can do a better job negotiating for the houses you want, and if you're an agent or a loan officer, how you can do a better job negotiating for your clients. Rob, what were some of your favorite parts of today's show? Honestly, man, I just I felt you were in your your, your element on this one. You were... You're giving all these anecdotes about your real estate career and your brokerage. And then he was like, yeah, and this is how the negotiation should have gone. And then he was like, you're like, yeah. And then in this situation, and I was just like, why would I talk? Why would I talk? I, I, I am watching a masterclass between two class acts on the art of negotiation. So we get into things like tactical empathy and really kind of understanding people where they're at and in kind of de-escalating a situation. And we even talk about a deal that I'm kind of working out right now and hopefully pulling off the coolest seller finance deal that that you know that I've done thus far. TBD on that. But uh, yeah, we, we get into some really cool stuff here. Yeah, you use some of the tactics that we're actually talking about in the show to get to the point where you're very close to putting that house in contract. And everybody, here's what you got to understand. We have as buyers more negotiation leverage than... It, we've ever had in my entire career of investing in real estate outside of 2010. Sellers need to sell homes. There's more supply than there is demand. The tables have finally turned. And as a buyer, if you have strong negotiation skills, it will get you further along than at any other time that I've seen. So we're bringing you an expert negotiator to teach you how to do a better job negotiating because it's worth more money now than it ever has been before. So Rob, I'd love to see you get that deal. And I remember you actually calling me and we us talking about it and you were like, how do I get the person to, to do this thing? And the advice I gave you was like explained and articulated much better by Chris than me, but it was along the same lines. If you got to reset the communication, you got to get it to an emotional state that's different. Don't bring up seller financing right now, get to this point and then do it. And it sounds like you're super close. So I'm really happy to uh, hear that that's the case. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. 
With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You ever feel like your vacation rental since empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Today's quick tip, consider embracing tactical empathy. How can you understand where someone is coming from without conceding your own position? This is what wizards do that negotiate. It's a way of acknowledging the other person's position, getting them to let their guard down, getting them to hear what you have to say without actually giving up anything of value for yourself. Very valuable uh, tactic to understand, a great strategy to use. You're going to be very excited to hear what we have to say today, and I don't think that there's a better person on the planet to be bringing it than Chris Voss. Rob, anything you want to say before we bring in Chris? No, man. Let's get into it. Chris Voss, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets podcast. We originally had you on on episode 260, and we've got you back now. You've been kind enough to give us your time as you're traveling. I believe you're in Montreal right now getting ready to give the keynote uh, speech at a big conference. Is that the case? That is the case. I am in Montreal. It's nice to see I was I was kidding around with my girlfriend earlier because I spent so much time in Vegas where I live these days, and I also just got back from the Middle East. I said, you know, it's crazy that uh, in the fall, the, the trees here are different colors. What color is it? <laughs> Well, they're red and they're orange and they're green. Like, I'm not used to that. Everything's brown in the desert. I think it's hilarious that you're in Vegas. I picture you like like this Celine Dion character that people are traveling all across the world to come listen to. And you just stay there and they go, they learn how to negotiate from you. And so you don't have to travel as much. But something tells me that's probably not the case. What what had you moving out to Vegas? Come on, Vegas, Celine Dion, like Sting was in Vegas. Compare me to Sting. You know, he did a Vegas. <laughs> See, I can live with that. See, I just don't know enough about Vegas. Celine Dion was the first one I'd heard of where I'm like, that's brilliant. She doesn't have to travel. She just lives there. But yeah, you're definitely much more of a... a Elvis. There we go. You're the Elvis of negotiating. In fact, I don't think there's anyone in this space that people think negotiating, they immediately think Chris Voss. You've got that level of uh, notoriety when it comes to this. So your first book, Never Split the Difference, is probably the most often quoted book in the space of negotiating. You've done an amazing job of carving out a reputation for yourself and frankly, helping millions of people across the world with understanding how to negotiate better for themselves. You have a fascinating story. Um, I'll sum up some of it because we want to get as much information as we can out of the podcast. You started off as a police officer in New York City. You worked some of the toughest beats there were. You were sharpened and forged in the fires of a very difficult time to be a cop in New York when crime was incredibly high. 
Uh, you were transferred to a little bit of a slower beat, didn't like it as much, started to realize that I've got skills. I, you haven't said this, but I'm imagining there's a part of you that was like, look, I can't grow without better competition, for lack of a better word. I need a more challenging environment. So you ended up going federal. You met some people that introduced you to federal officers. You went to, I believe it was Quantico, and you got your FBI uh, training. You joined the academy there, and you got out. And because you were a police officer, you were sort of uh, delegated a certain task that needed a little bit of a uh, like law enforcement experience. And eventually you went, f- you were trying to get in the SWAT program and you ended up in the negotiation program. Is there any big key pieces that I missed in that backstory? No, no. Uh, that's, uh, you, you hit the high points pretty well. You know, didn't say anything about me spending time as a country and Western singer, but nah, I think that was just a dream. And so I never did that at all, actually. <laughs> Well, you're in Vegas, right? So never say never. There's always an opportunity there. Listen, if you'd like to revive your your career right here on the Bigger Pockets podcast and break off a tune, we'd we'd welcome it. Yeah, yeah. I could sing sing off tune. Is that what you meant when you said break off a tune? Yeah, exactly. Well, one of your strategies is you have what I believe you describe as like the late night DJ voice, right? It's one of the ways you sort of lull the opponent into uh, putting their uh, defenses down. And so I can see that working for you in the country. Isn't there a country guy right now that talks when he's singing? I wish I could remember his name. Rob's not going to know it. Do you know who I'm talking about, Chris? Hunt, something Hunt. Yeah, I don't know. He'll be singing and he just starts talking in the middle of a song. It's it's very weird. Like you could sort of expand on that style. So uh, never split the difference, completely changed the game when it comes to negotiating. You explain the psychology behind what makes people do what they do. I find that absolutely fascinating about you is you're not just saying, all right, here's your tactical answer. When they do A, you do B. You really dive deep into what makes people make decisions and how you can influence what people do. Uh, one of my favorite books is called Pitch Anything, written by Oren Clough. Are you familiar with that one? I am familiar with that. I haven't read it yet. I intend to read it. Yeah, you'd probably love it. It's it's a similar type of thing when you're trying to get someone to understand your point. I'm sure if you read it, you'd be like, this is elementary. This is exactly what I've been doing. And you're maybe the first person ever, much like a Gracie that taught the world jujitsu, you sort of unlock the key to what makes people decide how they make decisions and then taught the masses. This is how you can cop- copy that. And in this space of real estate, this is incredibly important. Deals can be made or lost simply on the power of negotiation. So I want to ask you, what sort of prompted your interest in bringing your skill set, particularly to the world of real estate, which is the new book that you've got coming out? Well, um, as people are applying the negotiation concepts across the board, uh, a lack of negotiation guidance for the real estate industry, whether you be buying, selling, commercial, residential, agent, the there's a lack of guidance there and it's still human nature and people were applying it over and over and over again successfully in that, uh, in that area. So started, uh, got approached by Steve Shaw, um, who was coaching residential real estate agents in Los Angeles, still is. And Steve said, look, this is exactly what we need to be coaching these people on for the real estate profession and started collaborating with Steve. Steve, Steve is one interesting cat. Like I knew Steve for well over a year before I knew that he played in the NFL. Normally somebody played in the NFL, you know that within the first five minutes. About three years after that, I found out he was a Super Bowl captain. Like normally those guys are waving their trophies around because that's all they got to talk about. Steve had evolved his life so beyond that that it made sense when I found that out about him. But I thought, this is an interesting guy. He's, uh, 
he's not an insecure, ego-driven guy. He just likes to help people. So collaborating with him has been a, a, a ball. I really like the guy. So he has a background in real estate? Yeah, well, when he, le- when he left, uh, when he got out of the NFL, um, he went to Wall Street to make a lot of money on Wall Street. And then somebody stumbled across, he got across an opportunity to be a residential real estate agent. And Steve is, Steve is a, give me a system, I'll outwork everybody else out there. And turned around, made a ton of money in real estate. And then decided that he, he, he loved to help people get better. So having been a football player and having coaches coach him to be a better human being, he wanted to do the same for other people. And then he ran across Never Split the Difference and, and changed the approach on everything. So I got to imagine with, with Never Split the Difference, you probably have people reach out fairly often to, to talk about some of the crazy deals that they've successfully executed uh, what, just by you know using a lot of the, the philosophies and, and a lot of your tactics and that. Do, do you have a lot of people that reach out with like success stories in that vein? We get one way or another, somebody shares a story of a life-changing deal with me or my team almost every week. I mean, we hear from people all the time, this deal is going to change my life, whether it's uh, an, an employee negotiating with their employer or whoever it is, or like we got a brand new guy on the team that's very experienced, hostage negotiator, now teaching how to apply it in real life, who's learning the skills in real life. And he was, yeah, I just was on the phone with him earlier today talking to me about how he got upgraded to a suite in a hotel. It's kind of our standard our standard routine, you know, getting a pre-upgrade to a suite, if they have them. And the crazy thing about it is the way we do it, the hotel clerk doesn't feel like you took advantage of them. As a matter of fact, they bond to you. He says every time he passes the front desk, guy calls, hey, how you doing? You enjoying your stay? You know, they, they just, they bond to us. So even in little ways it starts to eliminate the friction out of your life and suddenly life is a lot more fun. Yeah, do you feel like you're <clears throat> do you feel like you negotiate now like or is it just second nature like like just something that you live by and so it always just feels very seamless. Like how how often in your mind are you like I'm about to turn on the negotiation switch. Does that ever happen? Well, you know, and we forget that what we feel is ourselves or our natural abilities, we learn. Like, everything is learned. So, you know, what's my motivation? I like to connect. And I and I do like to get be left better off as a result of the connection. So, yeah, I'm negotiating all the time. But I don't negotiate against people. I negotiate with people. Or I just, just connect with them. Like, let, what happens if they don't have uh, a suite available in a hotel? That's, that's one of the key issues on us. Sweet upgrade. Like, they can't give you what they don't have. I, I still want to connect with the person behind the counter so that maybe I need something the next day. Uh, and that's what that's what Don was telling me. He came back to the counter the next day because he ran out of coffee in his room. And a young lady that gave him the free upgrade comes out with, like, an armload of coffee pods. Like, he just wanted two. <laughs> she, she almost brought the box out to him because he connected with her. So we just want to connect with people and then good things have a tendency to happen as a result. So in this book, we, uh, we obviously in the world of real estate, there is the tensions seem a little bit high. Do you feel like in general, the way that the process is laid out 
with making an offer and negotiating an offer and trying to get into escrow. Do you feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect between all parties going into it? Because for me, I feel like I go into real estate very often and there, it immediately feels like when I submit an offer, I'm definitely not connected with the other party. And there's just tensions always feel high as soon as we, we hit the, <laughs> the, the send button on that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, the unfortunate way it's applied in a lot of instances is agents are basically trying to keep buyer and seller apart because they're afraid it's the emotions are going to get out of control. And that, but what that does is create even more uncertainty. You know, they, they don't get the opportunity to really get to know each other's human beings. And so people are left in the dark. Uh, a long time ago, when I, I tried out for the FBI's hostage rescue team, uh, the FBI's version of the Navy SEALs. They wanted to stress this out maximally, psychologically, not just physically, but psychologically even more. And so what they did was they kept us in the dark about what we were going to do. They'd take us for a run. And the unknown is the stressor. Like, you can endure anything if you know when it's going to be over. Or if you know that it's going to be over, if you know, but when the definition of traumatic stress is uh, overwhelming and unrelenting, which means you don't know when it's going to be over. You're kept in the dark. The unknown is the stressor. So what does that have to do with real estate? Well, agents are keeping people apart, which just as you said, now you're, you're launching a, an offer into the unknown. You're not connected to the people on the other side. They're not connected to you. You've got nothing but unknown going on there, which is a defensive move on the agent's part, but increases the stress on everybody involved, which is not good for the process. Because then if the offer is rejected or there are inspection issues, you created a process where stress is increasing every step of the way. And then a $7 million deal will get tanked over a $1,500 inspection because people were kept in the dark, people were kept apart, and the stress levels were kept high. And people get fed up and like, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, that's probably one of the biggest complaints that my real estate team receives from our clients is <clears throat> an offer is written and the agent reaches out. And they gather what information they can from the other side. And it's just like you said, both sides are trying to keep their cards as close to the chest as possible. Because when you're afraid or you're not confident, that's your natural response is just to, to close off. So they don't, they don't know what to say. They're going to try to say as little as possible. Then the agent isn't communicating with their client what's going on. They know in their own head what they think that needs to happen. But hey, there's no news. So they're just not reaching out. And the buyers are over there just marinating in worry and stress. They're just getting cooked from the inside out, exactly. not knowing what's happening. And in that state, it's almost like you feel like the world's against you. You're not assuming, oh, the sellers are going to accept my offer and it's a great offer. You're thinking the worst of everything. Now you're mad at your agent. And just like you said, when you finally do get a counter offer that can be a great solid thing, you are receiving it from this lens of mistrust and anger and stress and all this, this negative state you're in. And the knee jerk response is like, screw them. I'm not giving them a dime or I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, up my offer by $400 or whatever the case would be. What's your experience with seeing that element of human nature as it plays out and how do you try to combat against it? Well, that plays out all the time. And what ends up happening is it's one of the big problems for especially the residential real estate market or any real estate market 
you're never going to refer your agent. Like the process was so painful that you are, the only way you can avoid it is with that person is to never go through it with that person ever again. And agents are not, are not taught the right way to do it. I mean, you can't really blame them for doing it the wrong way. You could blame them only if they haven't known what the right way is. And the right way in many cases is counterintuitive or the right way isn't well modeled for them. And you, you just, you, you touched on one of the points uh, that, you know, you're in the dark because the agent's not communicating because agents communicate when there's good news or they're bad or, or, or there's bad news. When is there going to be good news or bad news? You don't know. So when are you going to hear from your agent? You don't know. So you're sitting there left in the dark waiting to see. Now, we manage this. I manage this personally. Somebody finally showed me how to manage it in a kidnapping scenario. And I didn't know the proper way until somebody finally told me the, the right way to do it. Because we're working on kidnapping in the Philippines. And I've got my hostage negotiators in touch with family members of the kidnapped victims across the U.S. Because you never know who the bad guy is going to call. Bad guys call up family members to get money. So you got to get hostage negotiators next to every family member, however many of them there are, wherever they are. And the family does not like any of my people. And there's one guy from the Department of State that they love, this dude named Ted. Great guy, quirky dude, sweetheart of a guy. And Ted finally calls me on the phone. He says, the families never know when they're going to hear from the hostage negotiators. That's why they don't like you. They like me because they always know when they're going to hear from me. I'm going to set an appointment for a call. And whether I got good news or bad news, I call on the appointment. And if I got nothing to say, I call and say, just letting you know, there's nothing new. And they love me. So we shifted this over with the families. Always call on schedule, no matter what. If you got nothing to say, Say, so I got nothing to say. I didn't realize this applied to the real estate market until I'm at a conference in Australia. And there's a woman running an operation in Australia that's got a referral rate that is through the roof. Her referral rate exceeds the referral rate of everybody else in the Australian industry. Nobody's even close. And she gives a presentation and she says, we call all our clients at scheduled times. They never wonder when they're going to hear from us. We always call them at the appointed time. And if we got nothing to tell them, we call them on the phone and say, hey, nothing new. No new offers. Nobody's been through the house. Nothing's changed in the market. There's nothing new. And they love us for it. And I thought, how more obvious could it be? But until somebody pointed it out to me, I didn't know that was a way to communicate. So one of the ways that we work with the clients that we're serving is we'll, I'll have my agents ask them, how do you like to be communicated with? Do you prefer phone calls, emails, text messages? And if there's, if there's no news, do you want me to tell you there's no news? Do you only want me to call you if you have to make a decision or do you want to know everything? And I'd say most people say, no, I want to know everything. They want the power of deciding if they want to put their feedback or their input in or if they're just going to let the agent make the decision. But not everyone is the same. So in your experience, what are the different kinds of people and what advice do you have about how to communicate with different personality types? Well, you know, and there's also the issue of whether or not they know what the best way to communicate with them is. And, and until they've been communicated with properly, they probably don't know. I mean, it's what uh, Jobs used to say, he, he doesn't design 
products based on what people want. He designs them based on what they don't know they want yet. Mm. I mean, it's an anticipation. He he trusted his gut instinct and his understanding of what, what people wanted. He didn't ask them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if, 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 if I don't know that there's a better way to communicate with me, then I'm going to reflect on my past history of how it's happened to me in the past, what I liked, what I didn't like, and I'm going to give you an answer based on what's been done with me in the past. So I may not know the best way. Like the, the scheduled communication, very few people really understand what a huge difference that makes until they've been through it. So that, that first problem is, you know, how do they know for sure? And then the other thing, you as a real estate professional, what you've got data when you don't realize you have it. Like to say, okay, so there's, the, you know, the call and say, hey, listen, nothing new. Well, the point of fact, the fact that there's nothing new is information. It's telling. You got information about the velocity of the market, the way the market is moving. Has the market changed? Has there have there been interest rate changes? Have there been have there been any sort of changes in the market that should have had an impact and didn't, or is having an impact but it's yet to be seen? So the fact that there's no news doesn't necessarily mean that there's no data. That's awesome. That's honestly my main frustration with realtors is that is I think there is a bit of a. I don't know. I feel like my realtors that I've worked with, they always feel guilty that they don't have new news. And so they don't want to like text me and get me excited, you know? And so they'll just, you know, I may not hear for a day or two and I don't want to be high maintenance. So I'm just like, I I want to ask, but I know what the answer is going to be. But I felt like when you uh, hearing you say that, I'm like, I actually do appreciate when I get a text from a realtor that's like, Hey, no news or whatever the, whatever they could report back with, whether it's no news or good news or bad news. But Having a scheduled check-in at least doesn't leave me in the dark quite so long. It's a it's a tiny little thing, um, but like I said before, when you're under stress, if you know when the next touch point is, you can deal with the stress. Uh, you know, I'm coaching a family through kidnapping. If I say, hey, I'll call you when there's good news, they're going to go out of their minds. I mean, they're going to lose their minds. If I say, hey, you're going to hear from me in an hour, even if even if their family members under risk of death at the moment, they know I can. I only got to wait an hour. In one hour, I'm going to hear from them. Or tomorrow at ten, I only have to wait till that moment. Your people's ability to w- deal with stress, and they unless it's they're taught, they just don't know how much of a stressor the unknown is. Yeah, and you mentioned that earlier in the show. It's a very very powerful idea. It's what causes the client to be upset is. They don't know when the phone call is going to be coming. And it made me think about when I was in the academy, we all got tased. And I'm watching grown men, strong men, SWAT officers, like the people that were leading you in the academy, these are your heroes, like literally making, (laughs) making unflattering sounds, begging for it to stop. So what they said is, if you can say the word stop, we'll turn it off if it's too much, right? But they hooked us up. So one probe was in our shoulder and the other one was in our opposite foot. So you're literally getting your entire body is becoming the circuit other than maybe your neck and above. It's 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 much worse than if you just got shot with a taser and you get two of them in the chest or something like that. So I'm sitting in there and I'm like, look, this is my first job. I'm going to make a good impression. I'm not making a sound and I'm going to take that full five second ride. And they hit me with it. 
And maybe half a second in, I just lost track of time. Like the pain is so much. My uh, my ability to estimate time just I lost it. I didn't know how long it was going to go for, and it was that feeling that was the worst. Like I was having thoughts go through my head. Like I think the taser broke, and they can't stop it. They're behind me, like hitting it. Like oh, we're gonna fry them. Like it it's not turning off because it that five seconds felt so long. And uh, if there had been like a timer, I could have looked at or something. It would have absolutely made the experience like possible like i could get through this if i can look at that timer but when you don't know when it's going to end it's so discouraging yeah a thousand percent you you captured that a, th- a thousand percent because when you're in the midst of the stress you do lose track of time and it's much harder yeah if there was a person there like hey man hang in there you got three more seconds you got two more seconds it's like it's an immediate relief and so and that's a powerful thing to think about when you're in a stressful situation is giving someone sort of the GPS coordinates of where they're at, where the next break is going to be. That's one of the things I've heard Jocko Willink talk about with uh, uh, advice to get through BUDS training for the SEALs, th- to say, focus on your next break. Don't think about how much pain you're in. Think about in two hours, they have to give us a break because legally they're obligated to feed us. If I could get through two hours and I could get to that break, I could make it. And then after that's done, you're going to start your next moment of hell. And you got to think the same question. Four hours, they can only do this me for four hours. I'm going to get a break. They literally describe that time chunking as a way to get through stressful situations. I wanted to ask you about one of the things that it, it feels to me like you're one of the forward leaning thought leaders in this topic of tactical empathy, a way of acknowledging where someone's at without conceding anything actual uh, of a practical nature. Can you describe what tactical empathy is and how this applies to negotiating? Yeah, let's, well, let's break it down into two components. Um, and so empathy. Empathy is demonstrating an understanding of the other side's perspective. It's not sympathy. It's not agreeing. It's not compassion. A friend of mine, Stephen Kotler, would say empathy is about the transmission of information Compassion is the reaction to that transmission. So the first problem is most people in today's terminology equate empathy to sympathy or agreement. It's not. It never was. Its origins, if you trace the uh, etymology of the word, the origin of the word, it's it was never meant to be agreement. It is meant to be understanding. Now, it's also a little bit more putting yourself in the other person's shoes that's necessary but inadequate. You pull yourself or you see it from their perspective, necessary but inadequate. To make it adequate, you got to articulate what you see, what you think they see. Not what you see, but what you think they see. So empathy is the articulation of the other person's perspective. Not fair, not accurate, not inaccurate. You could, you could think I'm a horrible person. I don't think I'm a horrible person. An empathic statement would be for me to say, you feel like I'm a horrible person, period. Just stop right there because that's articulating your perspective, not agreeing, not disagreeing, not saying, but I'm a nice guy, but I'm moral, but I have integrity. The word but were to come across your lips, you're out of empathy. All right, so tactical. You know, we dropped the word in there, first of all, to sort of disabuse it from being sympathy. And then... Tactical, what what tactics are we employing? Well, the tactics that neuroscience tells us the way the brain works. Neuroscience tells us that the brain is largely negative, number one. Not sunshine and roses. 
Survival mode is negative. We wake up in survival mode. Every human being, if left alone, is in survival mode, largely negative. Roughly, as a layman's estimate that I'm comfortable with, 75% negative. My neuroscience brothers and sisters would say, okay, well, that's probably accurate, just why you're saying it is wrong. Well, I don't care if I didn't explain the mechanism properly. It's still pretty doggone accurate, especially for layman's terms. Now, what's the next thing about neuroscience tell us about negativity? Best move is to call it out. Not deny it. Not explain it. Just call it out. That's why if 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 you think I'm a jerk, my best move for deactivating you thinking I'm a jerk, I could spend hours attempting to charm you, and that might or might not work. Eventually, it probably will work. It's highly inefficient. Or I could say, look, you think I'm a jerk, and shut up. And the amount of negativity that it might take me four or five hours of charm to make go away, I could probably make that go away in the space that it took me to make that statement. And I have in many cases, because if I need you to listen to me, I'm like, look, you think I'm selfish. You think I'm a jerk. You think I don't have any regard for your position at all. And in your head, you're going to say, wow, this is a straight shooter. I'm interested to hear what they have to say next. And so that's that's what where the tactics part comes from. Is that because our wiring psychologically is, it is so important to us that we are understood that we will just go for hours and hours and hours trying to explain where we're at until we feel heard. And you're just like shortcutting this whole process by giving it to them right in the beginning. That is exactly it. I mean, that's a great analogy. People will go on and on and on. Until they felt they've been understood, right? That's why people go on for hours. It's exactly right. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. 
Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with credit-worthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. I think, so I, there's certain people that I'll study, I'll listen to them speak because I like how they articulate themselves. Henry Gracie's one of them. The guy is just so captivating. He could he could say the ABCs and I, I could listen to him for hours saying the ABCs. Uh, ben Shapiro is a person who who probably just won't lose an argument his entire life. And one of the things I notice he'll do is rather than arguing with someone, if they make a point factually true, he will immediately say, yeah, you're right. The study does show that that's the case. I agree with you about that. And it's so disarming when the other side that's like geared up for this big fight and you immediately just give it to them. They almost don't know what to do. And it elicits this like, well, now that you gave me that, I the law of reciprocity would dictate, I feel like almost compelled to give you something. And now you're steering the conversation in a place where tactically it makes more sense. Do I have a, a decent understanding of what you're describing here? Yeah, very much. I mean, uh, c- certain aspects, additional mechanisms, I think are going on there. And is it reciprocity or um, does a, is when a person feels hurt, are they satisfied? Hmm. And they therefore don't have to, they don't have to get concessions from you anymore. I've noticed that works very well when, when I was in the stage of my business where I was the agent negotiating with the other agent. Okay. So I'm the buyer and I'm negotiating with the listing agent. It is incredibly easy. It's like a flammable relationship that it goes from we're getting along to immediately defenses go up. Both sides are incredibly sensitive that the other side is going to rip them off and they're very defensive over their client. And I, agents blow up more deals than they help because of their egos. They can't handle it. And I notice what you're saying would work wonders. When when we would come back and say, hey, we need a $25,000 credit because of the stuff in the inspection report, we don't really need a $25,000 credit. Okay, I want to get that for my client. They would immediately jump in and say, no, I'm not going to do it. End of story. We're not even going to talk, which usually means they don't know how to sort of navigate the conversation. And if I said something like, well, this is the deal, take it or leave it. I'm almost pushing them towards divorce. They're going to say, leave it. If I would say, you think we're over here trying to rip your client off and you don't want to go back and look like a butthead and say, you got out negotiated. I can understand that. What would need to be different so that you didn't think I was trying to rip you off? You could tell I was trying to save the deal. 
it started the conversation where almost every time they'd come back and say, well, it's not going to cost 25,000 to do it. You're probably right. We could probably find a person to do it for 18,000, maybe 15,000. This is about the time that it's going to take to do it. And the fact they could find another house that doesn't need any of this work. That's why we need to do it. Now, the question is, is it make more sense for your seller to sell to us three weeks into the escrow? Or do you think you're going to get more money if you go put your house back on the market, find another buyer? Interest rates have gone up. It's a little bit trickier. We're having a conversation where they're actually starting to see where we're coming from. And I can actually say things like, what would what could we change about this so that it felt like it was better for the your client? But it never happened if I didn't start off with exactly what you said. You think I'm trying to rip you off, right? Or sometimes they'd Google me and they'd see I'm like a big shot and they'd, they'd get more defensive. Oh, this guy thinks he's going to come push us around, right? And I'd say something like, hey, man, I actually would rather not put a lot of time into this. I'm trying to get this thing solved as quick as possible. I know it looks like we're trying to rip you off. What do we need to do here? Immediately, the whole story would change. Um, where did you first learn that? Like, did you have an experience where that moment clicked similar for you, like it did for me when I was negotiating with other agents? Well, I think, you know, uh, it's an accumulation and it probably was for you. I mean, you see in bits and pieces here, you struggle against problems. I mean, I first started seeing it when I was volunteering on a suicide hotline and I was seeing how just the, the act of understanding and articulating the understanding where the other side was coming from was rapidly putting people in different decision-making modes. Mm. I mean, regardless of what you're talking about, whether you're on a suicide hotline, whether you're on a sales call, whether you're in a negotiations, there's about three phases. And, you know, how quickly can we move through the three phases, which is establish a relationship, boil down a problem, make a decision. On a hotline, we call, you know, the last part, challenge, call it, act. In sales, um, you call it, you know, what's your call to action? They're gonna, are they going to buy? Are they going to close? In negotiations, have we got ourselves to a point where we're going to make a deal? It's kind of three phases. And as you struggle through the phases, when you start seeing somebody else uh, accelerate because they eliminated friction. Like, you don't always accelerate by going faster. Sometimes you accelerate by eliminating emotional friction. Maybe that's your tone of voice. Maybe you found you could get to your point quicker. You want to say, look, what do we got to do to fix this? You could, that's a great what question. But somewhere along the line, either you felt like saying, I'm sure it looks like we're trying to rip you off. What do we got to do to fix this? And bang, they went right into problem solving because you deactivated them with that first piece of empathy. Now, either you saw somebody do that or just out of desperation, you just decided on your own to just try it one day and, and you went like, holy cow, that worked. So I, I think we have these moments of insight that come as a result of an accumulation of experience and demonstration in front of us. I'm curious if you agree with this. I've sort of developed a new perspective on the concept of truth, mainly after listening to the different news medias that can take the same story and describe it so radically differently that there almost isn't like no human being knows the truth. 
they have a perspective of what we call truth. You can't handle the truth. Yeah, that's well, a lot of the time that limits our perspective of it, because if it hurts us emotionally, we don't want to see it. That literally does like our heart dictates what our head can see. So you take an issue that happens in the news and uh, in the world and the news reports on it. And this side shows you this element of it. And this side shows you this element. And we're arguing because what we're looking at looks very different from different sides. But the problem isn't that one side is necessarily lying. It's that they're only focusing on the element of the issue that emotionally they agree with, right? They, that they can handle. They don't want to look at the part that they can't handle the truth. Or in psychology, we call this confirmation bias, right? This part supports what they believe. This part causes cognitive dissonance. I don't like how that feels. And when that clicked, it, I was able to say to somebody, like, you're right. That's true. That does make sense to me. I can see that without conceding that I was wrong. Okay, because I what I'm looking at is just as valid as what you're looking at, but they're different. Is that a is that a piece that has to sort of play into what you're describing so that people can use the strategies you're describing here? Yeah, you know how how does it how does it affect somebody emotionally? How does it affect their identity? How does it affect their perception of gain or loss? What are the comparisons? You know, especially in real estate. I mean, good lord. You know, somebody in a three-bedroom house determined to get the price of a four-bedroom house because his brother-in-law sold a four-bedroom house for the same amount of money he hates his brother-in-law. I mean, you know, that's just it's all kind of crazy stuff out there like that. So, yeah, you know, what's going on in somebody's head? And, and most people don't even know what they're being held back by, which is the great thing about, as you pointed out before, when you're articulating somebody else's point of view, people are held back by principally two things, stuff that they're hiding emotional issues they're hiding or emotional issues they become blind to like they're experiencing an emotion but they're blind to it like you people get clarity of thought when you simply just point this stuff out looks like you know looks like you you feel like i'm i'm being greedy here and that clarity will help them level out and see things uh with less negative bias so chris that was another thing that i've recently sort of come to terms with, I've wrestled with this for a while and I finally just submitted and tapped out. People's feelings dictate what their brain thinks. I, we all see ourselves as logical, rational creatures, but it's very difficult to get a person to see your point of view if it emotionally hurts or it doesn't feel good or it creates anger. It's like our emotions are the rudder of the ship and we're, we think we're steering it and we're really not. Was there an element of that in human personality that you came to grips with because you're dealing with people in a hostage situation, the tensions are so high, you're almost having to acknowledge that person's emotional reality for 99% of the country. You're not going to get them to understand your point of view. You're not going to go to somebody there and say, look, man, I've been working for 16 hours. I really need something to eat in the shower. I don't want to listen to your right now. Can we just cut to the chase? Like that's not an option when you're in that scenario, right? Do you agree that ha like you got to start with the heart and the feelings before you can get to the head? Thousand percent. I mean, um, emotion drives decision. Yeah, it just does. Uh, our emotions, there's some data, there's a Ted talk that I like to quote on a regular basis. Um, Sean Acker, uh, the Happiness Advantage, I think, is the name of the TED Talk. He says you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Harvard psychologist, I'm satisfied that that's a decent source. What is So what does that mean? 
It means you're 31% dumber when you're in a bad mood. So, like, you can't make good decisions when you're angry or unhappy yeah. because you're dumber. You're just, you're, by definition, if you're going to buy that stat, you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. And there's a fair amount of other separate data out there that supports that. Then when you're in a bad mood, you're, you're angry or disappointed or frustrated or concerned, you're by definition dumber. Yeah, it's the best best to simmer down before you, you make the, the multi-hundred-thousand-dollar investments, probably. Um, so, Chris, I know David kind of alluded to this earlier with kind of this whole no thing, right? I know that you're a believer of starting with no or with a calibrated question. And I, I want to understand why that is. If you're going into a deal, my 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 thought here is you just sort of want to know how someone reacts but what is the intention with starting with a, a calibrated question whenever you're going into like a, a real estate negotiation? Well, um, human beings have conditioned themselves since they were old enough to make sentences that when they say the word no, it makes them feel safe and protected. And it, it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't even matter what they're saying no to. They're just like, I've heard people tell me about their counterparts and they say you know what they're in no mode no matter what we say they say no and my answer has been well change your questions like it can't be that simple unfortunately it is and if you just go from do you agree to you disagree to do you agree people change is this a, is this a good idea is this a bad idea are you in favor of a, are you against is it a ridiculous idea like that tiny little change, there's something about saying no that makes people feel safe automatically, right off the bat. And, and I haven't seen a scenario yet on earth where that wasn't the case. Um, and even the stereotype cultures, the cultures that are stereotyped for they never say no uh, are the Arabs and uh, the Asians. And they're human beings. And I say to them all the time, are you against this proposition? No, I'm not against that proposition. I mean, I get them to say no all the time because they're human beings. Human beings globally feel safer when they say no. So the ridiculous answer is change your questions so that you get what you want via no instead of yes. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit mind melting right there, honestly. I'm like, it's like, it's it's like this reverse, like, okay, now I'm going to be like, all right, every question I ever write, I'm going to write it out and flip flip the script a little bit. So that makes sense. So you effectively, they just, because they feel safer when you, when you kind of phrase it this way, now it sort of sets the floor to actually start having the conversation towards that shared end goal. Well, if they feel safer, then they feel less anxiety or less concern. Because as soon as I start trying to get you to say yes... You start getting concerned about where I'm going with that. You know, would you like to make more money? All right, that feels like a trap. <laughs> you know, and and traps, so many traps have been laid with yes, that then it's it's a stimulus response. You're every, we're Pavlov's dog. We've been trapped by yes. Every time somebody tries to get us to say yes, it's a trap. So the negative emotions I was talking about before, people feel trapped. They feel like they're being led into a trap. Concern is a negative emotion. They're automatically getting dumber. If they say no and they don't feel trapped, 
then they're not going to be getting dumber in the moment. They're going to be more likely to hear you out. They're going to be more likely to consider the options. They're going to be more likely to think of the next steps. It's the same neuroscience rule. Let me keep you out of negative thought. The chances that we can collaborate effectively are much higher because neither one of us are getting dumber. So for example, Chris, rather than saying, would you like to make money? It might be safer to say, would you like to hear about how I'll protect you from losing money? It's a form of a no, or is that still they're saying, yes, I want to hear about it. And so that would count as a, as a, not a no. Well, well, you're close. I mean, what you hit on the second part, which is a really strong one, is loss avoidance. And I don't know the so- source of the stat, but uh, somebody told me uh, several years ago that 70% of buy decisions are made to avoid loss versus accomplish gains. I mean, people are more likely to take a risk to avoid a loss than they are to take a risk to accomplish a gain. And the second part of that statement was about loss avoidance, which is people want to know, people want to hear how to protect themselves. Now, this is particularly important in the beginning of a relationship where there isn't trust established, right? This doesn't mean you have to communicate this way for the entire time you know somebody. No, you don't. I mean, uh, on my team, you know, we use the black swan method with each other all the time. And we ask each other, no, we call that a no-oriented question. Is this ridiculous idea? Are you against? We we do that stuff all the time. But yeah, occasionally I'll say, you know, if I got that right to somebody on my team, because we our trust factor is so high that we don't worry about um, the yes questions automatically. Now, if, if somebody calls me on a phone on my team who I trust, and ask me a question where the answer is yes right off the bat, immediately I'm going to go, all right, where's this going? Yeah, and you're trying to get ahead of where they're at. And you're not, like you said, the the primary emotional condition of a human being is defensive. It's, I got to stay alive. Your brain's constantly filtering information to describe to you. How's this going to hurt you? How's this going to kill you? How's this going to waste your time? How's this going to take your resources? So when you're trying to figure out where it's going, it's not like, oh, this is so exciting. What's Santa going to bring me for Christmas this year? It's how's this person going to hurt me? What are they trying to take from me? What are they trying to get me to lull my defenses down? And when you're talking to somebody and they're in that state of where's this going? Like I've noticed that they're always trying to like, when you're trying to lead someone down that path, maybe you're building a case with logic and they don't trust you there. It feels like they're dragging their feet at every single turn. And what you're saying is don't try to drag them along, go right back to where they're at, acknowledge what they're feeling, put it out on the table, let them make sure that that feels heard before you, you move forward. Yeah, yeah. And if you gotta if you gotta move somebody down a path, make sure that you you stop. And you know they got fr- they got the freedom to stop the process whenever they want. It's when people think the process is out of control and this is you know this this momentum is just unstoppable. That's when they really stop listening. So you know there are times we got to share points with the other side. Do it in small doses. This is all incredibly interesting, really. Honestly, hearing it, I feel like both of y'all are like same wavelength over here. And I'm over, over here just thinking about all the negotiations and the offers that have gone wrong. I called David like two weeks ago and I was like, all right, man, here's what they said. They said this and that. What do you think? Should I go? And he's like, no, no. And really, David's advice is always like very calm and like, this is how you have to approach it. This is probably how they're feeling. If you can accept that and really 
move, like lean into that, they'll be a lot less defensive. And so I, I actually feel, actually, David, I never gave you the follow-up on this because there were tensions, right? I came in with a lower offer. They weren't happy about it. And they kind of countered with a not my favorite offer either. But then after having our conversation, I was like, well, you know what? I can totally see that they were probably offended with my offer. What if we just waited? We did this and this and this. And then now we actually are in a completely new negotiation outside of what that original offer was to go into seller financing and trying to lock up. Yeah, completely reset it all. And honestly, where a lot of it started to to accelerate a lot is I stopped wanting to be such buddy buddy with the realtor, right? Because it's like you're always both parties are scheming with their realtor on how they can, you know, combat each other. But I was just like, I told my realtor, like, look, I think your mission is to go meet the other realtor where they're at you know, chat with them. Like, I want y'all to really connect more than us because I feel like that right now, the tensions are so high that y'all are trying to defend your clients. And what I really want is, hey, we're buds. How can we make this deal work? So yeah, now it's very possible that I'm going to get a... I'm, I'm hoping, I don't want to say it too out loud just because I don't want to jinx it, but I'm hoping to get a $1.8 million property under contract with with very little to no money down as a seller finance deal. And it's all because it's like, we kind of rethought how we wanted to approach the negotiation. Nice. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Give people a chance to work it out with you, right? Yeah. It's not natural to think that way. You tend to think like, it's just a number. Is it yes or no? Are you accepting my offer or not? But no one makes decisions. If they think that he's trying to rip them off just out of principle, their knee jerk response will be no. Versus if it's being received from a different lens. You know, one of the last things I want to ask you, Chris, I wrote a book for Bigger Pockets for real estate agents. It's called Skill. And, and one of the concepts in the book is what I call triangle theory. So the idea behind it, this is something we teach all of our agents, is I never want to be in conflict with the person I'm talking to, whether that's my own client, it's the other agent. When we have a disagreement, let's say you believe your house is worth 700000 I believe it's worth 600000 I may use superior experience, numbers, data to beat you down and get you to agree to list your house at 600. But if I win that battle, I will lose the war because there will be resentment. Our relationship is hurt. You're looking for any little mistake that you think I make so you can get me right back because I left you with you like your defenses up. So what what we teach or what I teach is create a third party or concept or anything that is the actual enemy align yourself with the person you're talking with against that enemy. So in this case, I would bring a list of of homes that have sold in the neighborhood and a list of market data. And I'd say, look, I agree that your house is worth $700,000. I'd love to sell it for that price. But here's what the data says. I need you to show me a house on this list that's $700,000 that takes into effect A, B, or C. The stupid market is just turned against us here. And it's screwing us. And we got to work together to overcome what's happened in the market. Now you're not mad at me. You're mad at this concept, right? And I'll do the same thing when I'm talking to my agent or I'm talking, sorry, a client. I'll make the agent the person that we're aligned against, right? Sometimes I'll go to the buyer's agent when I'm the listing agent and I'll be like, hey, man, I don't know what to tell you. Like my seller's stubborn. He doesn't want to bend at all. Can you give me something so he feels like he's not just like take getting the shaft right now? What if you guys came back and, and phrase it this way? And then when I go talk to my client, I'm doing the same thing there. Like, yeah, this this seller, he doesn't want to budge at all. We got to figure out some way to get him to understand why your offer is good. Is is there any uh, similarities with the stuff you're teaching to that concept or is that completely unrelated to the stuff in your books? 
Well, I like the idea of keeping yourself out of a position of being in conflict with who your partners are. And one thing that I've always believed is the adversary is a situation. Like anybody that you're talking to, you guys are both faced with different aspects of the same problem. that You're trying to collaboratively problem solve. So the critical thing about that that I love is the emotional intelligence of not being in conflict with the person that you're talking to. Is there any? Is there a different tactical approach that you might advise for real estate agents to take that differs from what I call triangle theory? Well, I, you know, I, I like the idea of keeping it when when you talked about the market, like here are the listings, here's the market, here's the issue. Like the the market is always going to be, which is the situation that that's always going to be the issue. Now, I'm uh, depend upon how 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 much you shift around us against them. The us against them stuff is very powerful. You know, I'd, I'd have to think about that some more to uh, think through where I was coming from on being as sort of flexible and fungible. Uh, I can't think of the proper term in, you know, who the adversary is. I like it, I like it with the adversary remaining the situation. That, that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. As opposed to the person that, that you are trying to get on your side. You, It's very important that we... That like in Rob's situation, he needed his realtor to go to the other realtor, form an alliance and make Rob the problem or the seller the problem. So the two of them could have some kind of uh, camaraderie there. And then when they communicated with their respective clients, it was coming as this isn't the enemy that we have to go take down. This is a problem that we can solve, right? The seller thinks this house. I think that in Rob's situation, the guy wanted around two million, and Rob offered one point four, and the guy came back at one point eight. So the two million guy felt insulted that Rob offered one point four. Rob felt insulted that he only brought it down to one point eight when the house has been on the market for six months or something. It's not worth that much money, and they're both viewing that scenario from like, screw this guy. Like they basically needed to just get out of that frame of mind. And like you're saying, Rob, you reset it. So now you're going forward. I would just encourage everybody who's in the real estate space to maybe get honest with themselves that your emotions play a very big role in the decisions you make. I thought, Chris, that was fantastic statistic that you are 31% dumber when you're in a bad mood. And it makes sense because if you're if you're holding your cards to your chest and you're all tight and you're like, no one's going to take what I have. You get like I, you were in law enforcement. You know what it's like when there's a threat. You get tunnel vision. You can't see anything but that threat. You don't know what's happening outside. There could be very easy. I mean, how many times did you see people in a foot pursuit running all over the place, and then the suspect would make a big circle and come and get in their car, and take off driving? It was the most humiliating thing that ever happened. And when when you're on the outside looking in, you're like, oh, that's that's exactly what's going to happen, right? Like if you if you get super afraid. What what we say is zoom out. Like when you zoom in on what's concerning you, you get dumb. You can't see the big picture. You got to zoom out to be able to see the whole thing. Is there any last pieces of advice you can give before we let you get out of here for people that want to become better negotiators, want to experience tactical empathy? They want to start this journey of understanding just how to be better communicators where they can start. The first impression is the second most important impression. The last impression is the most important impression. You know, in, in interactions, particularly if something's at stake, when there's conflict, the last impression people usually leave are cheap shots. You know, I would remind you, you know, uh, you can't sell this house. Uh, you can leave it on the market. 
I mean, the last impression is a lasting impression. You really put a lot of great um, encouragement for further conversations to make sure that you end all your interactions positively. And whatever you said to try to open a conversation positively probably bears repeating at the end just to make sure that the lasting impression is a positive one. So your new book, can you tell us what it's called, where people can find it, and where they can find out more about you? The new book is The Full Fee Agent. Like the number of real estate agents that don't get full fee just because they don't ask. So how do you ask? How do you set that out from the very beginning? How do you stick to it in a way that gains a client's trust? Like literally, we've had agents that have adopted this whole methodology work half as much and make the same amount of money because what a a lot of it is in being a full fee agent is not wasting your time on long drawn out deals that you don't make any money on because if you're a full fee agent you have a tendency to close and you have a tendency to repeat with clients it's going to be up on amazon uh as of right now november the 15th is a target release date Best way to know for sure on how to get a hold of it is to subscribe to the Black Swan newsletter because we'll be putting the announcement out in the coming weeks. Go to the website, blackswanltd.com, upper right-hand side of the homepage. Click for the newsletter slash blog. Look through our articles and also sign up for the weekly announcement uh, new new article on negotiation comes out every Tuesday morning. Information about how to buy the book will be coming out in the newsletter as well. BlackSwanLTD.com. Is that website the best way for people to follow or get in touch with you? It is. Yeah. B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. What's LTD stand for? Limited. It's a legal term. Nice. Great. Okay. I like that. Rob, any, any last questions before we let... Chris, get out of here and get back to his uh, conference in Montreal. No, no. I just have one last question or request rather for the audience. And it's if you've enjoyed today's episode and you like hearing from us and you you want our content to get pushed up in the podcast algorithms, then I ask that you leave us a review on the Apple podcast website or whatever podcast streaming platform that you use. Chris, want to thank you personally. Really appreciate you being here. Uh, I know this is probably not your first option of how to spend your time while you're on the road traveling. I know we also had to reschedule because I was out of town. So I want to personally thank you for being flexible with that and giving our audience a lot of your time, your attention, and your wisdom when it came at an inconvenient moment for you. So thank you. You're a class act. Uh, Any last words before we let you get out of here? No, thanks for having me on. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. This is David Green for Rob. Just listening in wonder of a solo. Signing up. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. 
Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.